All right, if you didn't get there yet, get to Genesis chapter 2. Should be pretty easy to find. If you have trouble finding it, uh, go to page 1. You'll find it there, Genesis chapter 2. If this is your first time with us, or if you haven't been here in a while, last week we started up a new series called When Sinners Say I Do. This is just a series on marriage, and that title comes from a book uh, that I actually gave away free to a couple last week called When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. Uh, One of its focuses, diagnosing the main problem in your marriage, which is sin, and it's specifically your sin. So very good resource, really committed to you. And last week, the main impetus of what we learned from Ephesians chapter 5 was that Paul... Paul in Ephesians 5 gives us a design for marriage. He gives us a pattern and power for our marriage. And what is it? It is the gospel, right? The gospel is supposed to be the pattern and the power for your marriage and how you love one another and care for one another and respect and honor one another. Now, uh, we're going to keep moving on in our uh, conversation and our study on marriage. And uh, I do... um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and give you a pre-warning, okay? Today, we are talking about what it means to be one flesh. There is a part of that topic that certain sensitive ears might not have discovered yet uh, in their lives. I don't want to be the one to break it to them, so send them to the gym or something. They can go play for the rest of the day, uh, or if you... If you, and I'm not going to be referring to it in very vague and obscene like ways. Like I'm not going to call it something strange just to mask it. I'm going to call it what it is, all right? So I gave you a warning, parents. If your kids after today start asking all sorts of questions, blame yourself. <laughs> but to be honest, what better environment to talk about that topic and from the one who gave us the instruction manual for it, and from the one who's like, hey, I've got a really good gift I want to give you. It came from him. He designed it. He talks about it. There's a whole book in, called Song of Solomon that, that builds it up like, man, I'm not going to ignore it, but just I warned you, okay? So I, see, I saw some kid left, so we're good. The rest of you are in for it. Let's go. <laughs> what do you guys know about metal? And I'm not talking about rock. I know some people know I'm, I, I don't know rock. Apparently, uh, apparently, Stairway to Heaven is not written by Queen. It's by somebody else. Uh, was it ACDC? No, I don't remember. No, I'm not talking about rock. I'm talking about like metal, like, you know, the, the things that we make rings out of. What, we know a lot. Did you know that there are 118 known elements on the periodic table? And that 91 of them are a kind of metal. Some of them are non-metals. Some of them are metals. Let me ask this. Ladies, when you think of metal, what is the first kind of metal that comes to mind? Gold. Go figure. Men, here we go. What metal comes to your mind? Steel. Iron. Titanium. Cobalt right? Just all these sorts of metals. Every single one of these 91 metals are unique. 
And each one of these metals has its positives and its negatives. It has its strengths and its weaknesses, pros and cons, just like you and me. For example, gold. Mm. Some of you have the, uh, uh, what, I've got white gold. What's the other kind of, rose gold and all sorts of other kinds of gold colors, right? It's naturally shiny. It doesn't corrode, but you can bend it, right? It's malleable. You can, you can, you can easily reshape it if you want. You can take a hammer and start flattening this pretty simple. That's why we didn't make this building out of gold. <laughs> Along with the other reason that it's, we wouldn't have enough money for it. <laughs> Iron, right? Iron is another kind of metal. And its chemical makeup, it's really strong and rigid. But when it's by itself exposed to air, like oxygen, it reacts to the moisture in the air and it begins to corrode and rust, right? Some of your golf clubs are rusting down in your basement because you don't bring them out, right? So you have these natural elements by themselves, these different kinds of metals, and they have their pros and cons, but they're still limited in some of what they can do because of those weaknesses, and yet there's been some scientific advances, which I know some of you have locally worked for like chemical engineering stuff and GE and DuPont and stuff. And I'm like, I'm, you can come up and do this because I, I just saw this on a YouTube channel, okay? You lived this. Scientists have discovered that you can make stronger, more durable metals by mixing them together, right? Do you know what that's called? When you take two different kinds of metals and put them together? Alloy metals. Alloy metals. It's a mixture of two different kind of metal elements. In the Old Testament, they discovered an alloy metal. You actually find it in there, right? You, if you melt down copper and you mix in tin with it, it makes bronze. And bronze is a much more suitable, stronger metal for battle, uh, for better use in construction. If you put copper and zinc together, they're alloyed together, they make what? I'm not actually expecting you to know. I just thought I'd see. Brass. They make brass. That's what we use in like locks and bolts and musical instruments. What about magnesium and aluminum? You know what those two mixed together make? Magnox. And that's used in nuclear reactors. Out of all the metals that are made, there's one that seems to be the strongest. And it's an alloyed metal. Do you know what it is? Steel. You mentioned it earlier. Steel is not an element by itself. It is actually an alloyed metal. It's made up of iron and a non-metal element called carbon. Now, some of you are like, where's the marriage in this, Scott? I'm getting there. Iron has its advantages and its disadvantages, but when you put it together with carbon, it makes this incredibly versatile substance that is just totally like indestructible. It's strong. It's actually the strongest metal that we know. It's, that's why we use it to make skyscrapers, right? And when you put these two unique elements together, unite them as one, fuse them together, the results are just this amazing thing. In the same way, when you take two unique individuals made in the image of God with their unique strengths and their unique weaknesses, 
and they enter into a similar fusing process that we call marriage, they become one. And they make something unique that's never been seen before on the face of this earth throughout all of history. A unique marriage. Versatile, strong. Today is all about what it looks like when two sinners become one in marriage. So for us to understand what oneness looks like, we kind of need to go back to the source of where it all came from. We need to go back to the beginning when God created this institution that takes two individuals and makes them into one person, one existence. And we're going to go to the defining passage on the marriage covenant, and that's in Genesis chapter 2. Just to keep in mind, uh, we saw the six days of creation in Genesis 1 as recorded, and then in Genesis 2, we see some exposition of what those days may have looked like, and we find out that God had just finished speaking all of creation into existence, different kind of uh, creatures were made, sea creatures, air creatures, and we're probably on day six, definitely on day six, when God makes man. Now, we know that he makes man, all of these things, and he, de- he declares all of his creation as what? Good. And then after creating man, he calls it very good. It's something unique there. But after he creates this garden and he creates the man, he puts the man into the garden to give him instructions to tend to it and work it. And then he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, take a look at it. And I would say that this isn't just a prescription for marriage. This is just a good principle for humanity. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. What I mean by that is it's, it's just generally good that we not isolate from one another. But here we know God has in his heart something more unique, marriage. So what does God do? God brings together all of the different animals that he just speaks into existence on earth to Adam. And Adam gets this awesome privilege of naming every single animal that exists on the earth. It's kind, of like, but it's kind of like the bachelor, but animal style. And at the end of the day, he didn't find anybody suitable. Just didn't work out. So what does God decide to do? He makes one. It's the, uh, there's a reason why uh, women are much more intricately designed. It's why they have the X and they miss, the men miss the Y. It's because God actually took the time to make a woman. For a man, he's just like, dust becomes something. Right? <laughs> God determines to make one. That's actually literally the verb in the Hebrew. He makes, he creates, he builds the woman. But we're going to, how does it work? Well, Adam goes night, night. God opens him up, takes a rib out, closes that up, and he takes the rib and he makes the woman. He builds the woman and he brings the woman to Adam. My, uh, my dad used to tell me the joke that, um, the name woman actually came from the first time that Adam saw Eve. Sees her coming down in her majesty. Whoa. Man. Whoa, man. Woman. I'll take it. Now, of course, that's such a really corny joke because English didn't exist back then. But woman literally means out of man. It means to come out of man, which Adam affirms in his joyful shout. 
He's like, praise God. Finally, this whole day has been a disaster. I thought I'd find somebody. Nobody was suitable. And then you make one. This one has been made from me. Her bones are from my bones. Her flesh is from my flesh. I'm going to call her woman because she came from man. And then we get to our main verse for the morning, verse 24. Therefore, you always need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because of how God created Adam and then Eve using Adam's rib, with how intricately involved that relationship is, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Guys, this is the foundational verse for defining marriage. You want to talk about what marriage is? Genesis 2, 24. Now, here's what's interesting about this. When you're at weddings and you hear the father of the bride or the mother of the groom, whoever it is, and they're giving their toast and they they, they try to console themselves with these words uh, that you always hear at almost every wedding. I'm not losing a daughter. I'm gaining a son. No, you're not. <laughs> Biblically, no. Just no. Biblically, that's not true. They are not joining the family of the parents. They are leaving the family of the parents. The wife is leaving her parents' family, and the husband is leaving her parents' family, and the two start their own family. Now, if you're a father-in-law or a mother-in-law, that's not bad news. That's actually really good news. Because if you've done your job to raise up a Christ-centered individual, then that is starting a new Christ-centered family. And we need tons of those. Now, this doesn't mean when you hear the word leave that that means you cut off. That just like, like, oh, no more. I'm not going to talk to you until we're at glory, right? Like, that's not the, the nature of that kind of relationship. But what it does mean is that you're willing to let them drop the ties that anchor them to you and let them set sail on their new journey together. You have to be willing to do that. Because if you don't and you try to keep holding on to them, you will lose them even worse. And for you married couples, this is very good counsel for how to navigate your relationships with your own parents and your in-laws. Your spouse always comes first. Every time. And again, if your parents have any agreement with God's word, they'll praise the Lord for that conviction in your life. But they still want to see the grandkids. They still want to be involved, right? Like... Let them have their way. Let them spoil the grandkids with all the goodies and stuff. Now, we've talked about that part. There are two phrases in verse 24, two kind of groups of words that are vital for our understanding on what marriage is. The first is this. What is the man to do to his wife? What's the verb there? He holds fast. He's left his father and his mother, and to his wife, he holds fast. So I would encourage you, if you write in your Bibles, circle those two words, hold fast. 
To hold fast means to be joined to. It means to be united to, to cling to, to cleave to. In fact, even more literally, it means to fasten oneself to an object. So if you look throughout some of the Psalms, this same Hebrew word is used of the same thing that your bones do to your flesh. Your bones cling on to your flesh. They hold on to them tightly. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is actually right here, he says that the word to hold fast is from the Hebrew that literally means to be glued to something. Elsewhere, the word means to unite to someone through a covenant, a binding promise, or an oath, which is why we refer to marriage as a covenant. Now, when two objects are glued together, you don't really just see them as two objects anymore. You don't define them as, oh, that's just two objects glued together. No, you talk about them as one now. So when you think of me, you probably have my wife in mind. When you think of my wife, you probably have me in mind because we are one flesh. It's the nature of how it works. Marriage isn't seen as just two individuals in close proximity to one another. They are glued together as one entity. Or to use our opening illustration, they are two elements fused together as one alloy. So this is where we get to our second key phrase in verse 24. When a man holds fast to his wife, the two become what? One flesh. Circle one flesh if you write in your Bible. Circle one flesh. Some of your translations might say one body. The, the, the word there is okay. It can be flesh. It can be body. It's also translated as one creature. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this about this concept. This bond is best described in the expression, he now belongs to her because she belongs to him. They are now no longer without each other. They are two and yet one. So several years ago, um, actually, this, uh, one, of our, one of my wife and I's friends, uh, who was one of the youth leaders that I grew up with in my church, she went on a mission trip to Kenya and brought us back a wedding gift when we got married. And it was this. This is uh, from Kenya. It's made of marble. And it is the Kenyan symbol, as best as I can understand it, for marriage. Now, what do you kind of see here? You see two loops, right? Two unique parts to this. And yet if you look long enough, you'll find out that it's actually just one piece. You can see it follows it up through here, back down, follows it up through here and reconnects. So though you might see two, it's cut from the same rock. It's just one. One piece, not two. In the same way, one flesh is just like that. We might see two, but we really know before God, it's one. There's just one. It's a beautiful way to show marriage, isn't it? So it sits on, uh, in, our, on our shelf in our, in our sun room, S-O-N room. It's where we worship the Lord together. This is two sinners 
made as one flesh. An intimate mingling of souls. Now, some of you, when you hear this, uh, you might start to express some concern. Because you're concerned about your individuality, and you're probably even concerned about your independence, right? Your individuality and your independence, right? That might be your concern. Or maybe your concern has more to do with, this just seems pretty outdated, Scott. This isn't what we, how people view marriage in our culture today. This is kind of archaic, right? Well, let me start with that one first. You think it's archaic? You think it's just Old Testament? You think it's just supposed to happen with Adam and Eve and nobody else following? Uh, Our Jesus uses this verse to reaffirm the establishment of the marriage relationship in Matthew 19. So Jesus is like, yep, you want marriage? That's that's the definition. A husband shall leave his, or a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's very clear. We also see in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes the same verse in the context of marriage, what marriage is supposed to be about. So it's reaffirming it, not just simply in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the New uh, Covenant epistles. So it's not archaic. It's supposed to be prescriptive for all of time and land into every culture. Now, I may have struck a chord with you, though. Maybe, Maybe you're single and ready to mingle, or maybe you're about to be wedded. And you have just this concern about becoming one flesh and losing your independence or losing your individuality. First, I would just simply caution you, maybe you just haven't found somebody you want to lose your independence to, right? Find somebody better. Secondly, as for your individuality, if you're concerned about losing that, The only way it can be of great concern is if you give to your spouse or your spouse forcefully takes from you that which doesn't actually belong to them. And here's what that means. Your value as a uniquely, wonderfully created person, an image bearer of God, though you're a sinner, is not something that your spouse gets to redefine about you. If you're concerned about losing your individuality, you can avoid that when both people in the marriage still value the other person's worth from God. And the fact that you're uniquely and wonderfully made by the Creator, that will be honored and cherished if your spouse holds to the same conviction that you do. So your your individuality won't be robbed of you It'll be more thoroughly enjoyed. When a man, having left his father and his mother, what's he to do to his wife? Hold fast. We're back in verse 24. He holds fast. And then they become what? One flesh. Holding fast, one flesh. Two sinners becoming one. But what does that mean more practically? We know that's the institution. What does it mean to live as one day-to-day life? Well, we're going to look at six main ways. Six main ways we live as one flesh. Now, before we get to those six main ways, I, I, I feel like it's my obligation to 
help you notice something about this verse. In verse 24, of all the four people mentioned, the, the man, the father, the mother, and the wife, who is the main actor in that verse? The man. It's the man. Can we say the man? It's the man who leaves his father and mother. And we also know what's implied is that the, the wife does too. It's the man who holds fast to his wife and the two become so intimately one. So basically what that means is simply as we walk through these six different ways, some of the main ways we live as one flesh, I might pause and talk to men. Uh, this, is, this is not to discourage women in any way, and, and not to marginalize you in any way, uh, but I've got a, I've got a mandate uh, from the Lord uh, to, to speak to the men and encourage them to, to step up into the role of headship that we talked about last week. And headship being self-sacrificial giving, right? So the first way that we live is one flesh. And I would say this is the most important it's in one faith. Can you say one faith? one faith? One faith. It means you two substantially share the same worldview, the same convictions, and most importantly, the same beliefs about God and the gospel that's found in his word. You share those. Scripture is insanely clear about this relationship. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? If you think I'm taking this out of context, he's talking about the nature of relationships. You can apply this as a good business practice. You want to go into business with somebody who's a cheat, lying, and a thief? No! Because they don't share the same faith, the same values as you. And what's the relationship in the world that binds you most to somebody? Marriage! It's, it's marriage. If you take a strong ox and yoke it to a mouse, are they going to do anything good? No. As this isn't just business advice. This is counsel about those relationships that yoke you to somebody else, that commit you to them. So here's the simple way to put this. I want to encourage you, if, if you're dating right? Don't even be interested in dating somebody who doesn't have a life that accords with faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. And all the parents are like, hey, kid, did you hear that? Right? <laughs> Here's the problem, though. I'm, uh, I think I'm a millennial. I think I have a hairstyle of, of a millennial or a Gen Z, but I think I have the, uh, the grayness of a boomer. Um, I see so many people, so many of my friends, not here, so many of my friends who I know have a clear love for Jesus, who start to date people and be interested in people who have absolutely no interest in Jesus, who have maybe a minuscule kind of, yeah, I believe in that guy. Yeah, I believe whatever, right? And they have this minuscule kind of faith or no faith at all, and they these sold-out Christians go into those relationships, and the reason why is because they don't feel like everybody else is out there to date. They feel like the pool just keeps getting smaller. I promise, and I found out that all those relationships ended in disaster. There were temptations in the relationship that shouldn't have been there. 
I'm telling you, it's worth the wait to find someone of the faith. It absolutely is. Why? Why is that the case? Because in our faith, we find absolutely everything that is most important to us and our participation in life. Look at the things that our faith gives us. It gives us our theology, what we believe about God. It gives us our identity, what we believe about ourselves because of God. It gives us our worldview, what we believe about the world, how it came to exist, what the purpose is. It gives us our morals, what we believe is right and wrong. It gives us our ethics, how we're going to define how we live. It gives us our mission, our purpose, and so much more. If you don't both agree on the source of all of those things, your marriage will be so chaotic. In fact, it will devour your marriage. But what happens when you both agree that Jesus is going to hold your confidence? He's going to be where your faith lies. What happens? Let's say one of you is on one side and your spouse is on the other. And if you're willing to set your eyes on Jesus and make your pursuit him foremost, what happens to the distance between you and your spouse? Gets closer and closer and closer. If you want a more intimate relationship with your spouse, seek Jesus first. Make him be your primary element of faith, not your spouse. You're not supposed to believe in your spouse. You're supposed to believe in Jesus. My wife, when she and I shared our vows together, um, she included in part of her vows, which I actually have her vows on my dresser at home, she included as part of her vows that she's, she's heard once that marriage is when two people running hard after Jesus look side by side, see one another running after Jesus and say, hey, you want to do this together? Love you, babe. This is the first big checkbox of what it looks like to live as one flesh. It starts with Starts with this, one faith. Secondly, we have this second part, which we'll worry about that later. That's why you take notes. Come ready, be vigilant. Second way we live as one flesh is we become one spiritually. Can you say one spiritually? No, this doesn't mean that you become that person's Holy Spirit. You don't get to convict them of all of their wrongdoing. You might expose it, but you, not, you don't get to convict them, right? What it does mean is that you two now share a relationship with God. You two share a relationship with God, which means your spouse will benefit when you run after Jesus with reckless abandon and vice versa. It also means that when you live one spiritually, you take on a deep concern for how to help your spouse grow up in their faith and grow up in their love for God. So, for an example, husbands, in Ephesians 5, in that passage, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
right? As part of that command, we see that we're, that, that we're to wash her with the water of the word. We're to give her a, a word bath, right? Not because we think she stinks, but because we're, we're, we're responsible for making sure that, that God's word is a cleansing agent, that it, that it, that it helps we're both to always be asking the question in our marriage relationships, how can I get my spouse closer to Jesus? You can't force that. You have no control over it. So how do you do it? You create environments, right? What can I do to create an environment in which my spouse grows more in love with Jesus and surrenders more to Jesus and gives all he or she has for Jesus? And how does that first begin? It begins with your radical pursuit of Jesus, not your spouse's. It's just like you're going to say, I'm going to wait till tomorrow to take care of it. It's like, oh, I'll wait until she starts. I'll wait till he starts pursuing after Jesus. Are, are you going to go before God and say, ah, I was waiting until she started? He's going to hold you accountable for your relationship with him, not her. You run hard after Jesus. And you gently and carefully Bring God's word into your marriage for mutual good. So I would encourage you, husbands, more specifically, if you haven't yet started to lead your wife in marital devotions, please do that. I have tons of resources I can give to you. Lots of devotional books for couples that I can push your way. Take the lead on that. But if your spouse is struggling with anxiety or fear, nourish them with the word. If they're doubting a promise of God, pray for them and reassure them of God's faithfulness again and again. Be prayerfully concerned about your relationship with God together because one flesh means you're one spiritually. There's a third way. Thanks for fixing the screen. Y'all are the best. I think. Well, you are the best. One physically, that's the third way you live as one flesh. One physically. Can you say one physically? One physically. All right. Here it is. Are you ready? Are your seatbelts strapped? <laughs> All right. To live as one physically means to live as one sexually. But not only that, Right? Physical intimacy is much more than just sex. However, sexual intimacy is a beautiful part of marriage, and we do need to take a time to talk about that because it has been totally distorted and ruined out in the world. Let's make one thing clear. Sexual desires and sex are good gifts from God. Only men said that. <laughs> the women are like, can we get past this, please? Lord, I need grace. They are not sinful. They were before the fall, not a result of the fall. Enjoying sexual intimacy is a good gift from God in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's where it's supposed to be. That's where it's supposed to be enjoyed. What it's reserved for in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Guys, Adam and Eve were, a, I mean, we just kind of say in Scripture, 
They were sexually attracted to one another, and they enjoyed sexual intimacy all before the fall. I mean, why do you think it says that they were naked and unashamed? Because sexual intimacy inside of marriage is a beautiful thing, and it's something to be enjoyed. And when it's enjoyed rightly, it glorifies God greatly. In fact, we see this kind of understanding in, in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul tells husbands and wives that this is something you should really give yourself to. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, if you were concerned, wait, 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 so I, I don't have rights over my body? Neither does he, okay? So it's, it's equal rights all around, just so we're clear. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Do you see the mutual nature of this? Not one domineering over the other, just simply together, I'm yours. She's mine. The wife has rights, the husband has rights, which in that day when that was written, that's monumentally progressive compared to what was happening in the culture. Wives had no rights. This is amazing. This is the redemption of culture. Now, if you read this passage, I haven't seen it yet, but if you're nudging your spouse, you see this? I like this pastor. Look what he's saying. See what this verse says? You need to give it, right? If that's your inclination, you've missed everything. You've missed it all. It's not about their willingness. It's about your own. It's about your own willingness to offer physical intimacy to your spouse as they desire, right? If your spouse desires sexual intimacy, by God's grace, don't deprive. Now, Physical intimacy is not just sex, men. It's not. It's not just that. It's anything physically intimate. So if your wife wants a nice little back scratch, you grow out your fingernails and you scratch her back all day long. Right? If, 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 if your wife wants some cuddle time, you man up and you cuddle. If your wife wants a back massage or a foot massage, you break out those essential oils and you get to work. <laughs> if your wife wants physical space, you give it. And you agree on a time when you're going to come back. It's all about what I have control over in my marriage. I can't, I can't make her do anything boy, I want to make it as easy as I can. I want to be as godly as possible. To live as one physically starts with me and my mind, not with my concern for my wife, me and my mind saying that what my body can do isn't just mine. It's for my wife's enjoyment. That's what I'm responsible for, Okay? Each one of us should adopt this mentality of a self-giving love. 
and give grace when the other person's not ready or able. So, in short, don't demand this of your spouse. Demonstrate it. Is everyone uncomfortable enough now? You want more? Okay, he's like, no, I want more. We're moving along, okay? Just had to say it, all right? It's part of it. Let's move to the fourth way we live as one flesh. We live as one emotionally. Can you say one emotionally? All of you are so depressed now. Oh, man. I can hear it in your voices. Ah, I probably should have said that one first. Yes, it means that we live one emotionally. It means that you share the highs and the lows. In fact, if if you want to keep it as simple as possible, God commands this of all of us when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, right? In fact, marriage is supposed to be where that's most physically on display, where that's most emotionally on display. It's where it visibly happens the most. And the only way that this can work is if you talk about how you're feeling and experiencing things to one another. Redemption for the men. I love it. (laughs) Honestly, men, it means that you're willing to open up and let her in because that's exactly where she wants to be. And it also means that you listen to one another. You You don't go in trying to solve the problems. You don't go in trying to fix it. It means you just simply listen to the anxieties. You listen to the sorrows. You listen to the celebrations and the joys. And you empathize. Listen and empathize. If we're going to live with one another emotionally as one flesh. Finally, we have, or fifth, sorry, we have one financially. We live as one financially. Can you say one financially? financially. All right, now... uh, Ironically enough, this one probably seems to be the most controversial, okay? Uh, Because I think we have a lot of disagreements typically on this. But to live as one flesh means you live as one financially. This means the money that I make isn't mine, it's ours. It means that the bills for the house and the car aren't mine or hers, they're ours. It means that the debt, even if we came into the marriage relationship with it, it's now ours, not hers or mine. It's ours. So I just want to kind of put out a little feeler and ask you to evaluate this. If you are currently living with two streams of income that go into two separate banks account, bank accounts, and she has her money and he has his money and they never cross and you divvied out the bills to who takes over what, and you take the debt and you split it to her, and she gets that, and then you take this, you are not living as one financially. You might need to put some band-aids on your toes after that. I love you. You're not living as one financially if that's how you handle your finances. Now, you might argue, you might argue this way, well, it's easier to live with two accounts right? Uh, You might even go so far as to actually admit the root cause of this and say, 
I have things that I want to spend my money on that they disagree with. And they want to spend their money in certain ways that I don't want to do. And so it's just easier to keep them separate. The bank accounts and how you handle that are simply symptoms of a much deeper problem in that marriage relationship. Why aren't y'all one flesh on how you understand life, purpose, and meaning? Right? Can you, from your, like, collective account, if she has income, he has income, whatever it is, you put it into one account, and then somehow, in some way, within that account, you budget out parts of it to be used by the wife or the husband that's their money they can use however they want? Absolutely. Dave Ramsey calls that blow money. Blow money. Whatever you want to blow it on, blow it. But here's the biggest reason why I believe husbands and wives should share income and bills and financial responsibilities instead of just divvying them out and keep their finances separate. And it comes from the gospel itself. Remember last week, the pattern and the power for your marriage, if you want a really good one, is the gospel. So that's why we're going to take a look at the gospel. First and foremost, simply put, Jesus took on our debt. We're like 10 seconds into the gospel, and we already find an example for us to land into how we handle finances. He takes on our debt. Another look at the gospel says in Romans 8 that you and I, if we have faith in Christ, we become co-heirs with Christ, which means everything that he gets, we get. Everything he won, we get. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that he has purchased in our pardon, every prize that he has won, all the riches that he has, he is planning to share with us, his bride. Jesus is the husband of all husbands, and he is eager and quick to give everything that he gets and share it with his bride, the church. And he shares with her all that he has earned. So that's why spouses, I would encourage you to to share in what you earn, everything that comes in, and share in your debts. All your income is yours together. Every bill is yours together. Guys, I promise you, I have seen so many arguments and headaches in marriages come from the debate as to who's going to take what bill or whose finances are whose. The easiest answer, what's hers is mine and what's mine is hers. We share it together because we live as one flesh. So I want to encourage you, whatever it takes, specifically in this area, come together on this as one flesh. Whatever hardships you have to go through to endure, come together, okay? Now, um, there's one sixth one, one final one, and I think it's probably gonna be probably the hardest, and it's this, is that you live together for life. You are one for life. Now, again, I say that this is probably going to be hard, and, 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 and I, I, I want to try to handle this as delicately as I can. Some of you have gone through what it looks like to have a marriage end, and, and I'm, I want to navigate that very carefully, but I, I still feel like I, I have to speak to the, the ideal, to what God desires, but I also want to remind you that there's infinite grace, infinite mercy, infinite love available in Christ no matter how that marriage failed. We know from Scripture that God designed a marriage covenant, the one fleshness, to last your whole life. 
when the religious leaders asked Jesus about the lawfulness of a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, Jesus said this, and I'll read it for you. It's Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now they fire back at Jesus and say, well, then why did Moses give us a command to give a certificate for divorce and send her away? Why was that as part of the law in the Old Testament? Why did God provide a way for marriages to end? And Jesus' response back is pretty fiery. Again, Matthew 19, verse 8. He gave it because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, divorce is understood as a caveat or, or, or like a permission given by God simply as a provision for the fact that marriages are made up of two sinners. And someone's heart can become so hardened to God that it is actually dangerous for their spouse to stay in that marriage relationship. Scripture gives two very clear permissions for divorce. The first is adultery, when an individual gives their love and self to another. That's the first provision. And the second provision is abandonment from an unbelieving spouse. So, for example, if you came to faith in Christ when you were married and your spouse is like, I don't want any part of this anymore, and they leave, that's part of Scripture, and that's not on you. I would also say that there might be some other considerations worth making. Addictions and abuse are high on the list as well. It was given because of hardness of heart. And typically we ask the questions when we go into a conflict like this, is such and such grounds for divorce? But the gospel question is, is such and such grounds for forgiveness, restoration, and or counseling? Why? Because God wants our marriages to display the gospel. And forgiveness and redemption and restoration lie at the heart of it. In fact, this is something that John Piper says. It's not going to be up on the screen. He says this, Therefore, what makes divorce so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife, ever. God's heart for your marriage is that it is to only be ended by death, not by man, not by any person's will. Even though he makes permissions and provisions for hardness of heart. So husbands and wives, when you are in that fight and you are in the heat of it, and you have that little thought in your head come up that you want to threaten divorce, you better squash it. That, that, that's not a thought you entertain. That's not one that you give permission to exist in your mind. The only thing that you allow is, how can I show the gospel in this? God wants us to grow old together, 
to see one another grow out gray hairs or lose our hair for some of us, like me. He wants us to journey through our whole lives as one flesh together for better or worse, in sickness and in health, in joys and in sorrows, through highs and through lows, until death does you part. And until death does part you, live as one flesh. In faith, spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, for all of your life and any other way that we find in Scripture. That's God's design for your marriage. One flesh. So I just want to ask you, what's your heart going to be in this? Are you willing to fuse more and more of your life with your spouse? Or does a sense of distrust keep them at arm's length from you? Are you willing and wanting to come together more and more with your spouse to fuse yourself to make something even stronger and more durable that can last a lifetime. So this time, I, I, I want to encourage you just to kind of prayerfully bow your heads, and, and I need you to ask yourself some questions. If, if you agree that all of this is God's design for marriage, if, if you can see how this lands into your life, but you have some deep hesitations or some concerns, or you feel like you're not measuring up, I want you to go before God and I want you to seek his face to find his grace. Or maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're just terrified of this idea of binding yourself so intimately to another person who has their own weaknesses and failures and history. You have to ask the Lord to deal with you now. And if your heart is to agree that God wants to make you into one flesh, then say to the Lord, God, whatever it takes, one flesh. Father, we humbly come before you, and I, I know the nature of this conversation can be very positive for so many and, and very hurtful for others just because marriage comes with all sorts of hardships and yet for some reason uh, we just see reflected in the gospel <laughs> in your relationship with Israel <laughs> and how crazy that was and your relationship with us even now uh, we're not yet perfect when we see you face to face then our relationship will be perfected we thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your unconditional love, for how you self-give first. May we individually model that in our marriages, whether we have marriages now or whether we're looking to become married one day. However, we're not aligning our lives with our spouses to live as one flesh, holding fast to them. God, I pray that you would convict and that you would reshape us so that you would mold us into the kinds of marriages that preach the gospel to the world around us. Please, God, may our marriages display the gospel as we live as one flesh. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I told you last week first that I, um, that I wanted to do everything I could to 
resource couples, individuals in marriage. Um, this is the meaning of marriage. It's actually a resource that I recommend in premarital counseling as well. So I, this isn't just for uh, married couples. It's for pre-marriage or even single individuals looking to get a better glimpse of marriage beforehand. Uh, this is uh, free. If somebody wants to commit to reading it this year, if you would raise your hand, I'll give it to you right now. It's, everybody's seeing how thick it is. They're like, nope. <laughs> Anybody want it? Okay. All right. Who was it? All right. I'll give it to you after. Also, um, to kind of help build up a sense of romance in our church, uh, we are on March 3rd, which is a Sunday, that evening. Uh, youth, you don't know this yet, but you're going to be holding a fundraiser. <laughs> it's called a date night. The youth are going to be watching kids for anybody who wants babysitting. And any donations that are made will benefit the youth fund at our church to help send them to camp, help their events, and things like that. You'll hear more about that, but Sunday night, March 3rd, it starts at 6. You can drop the kids off then, and you can pick them up at 8.30. That's the plan. You can go out on a date. Don't go home and do chores. If, it, if it's got a nice steak dinner right in front of you and a candle in the middle, I'll take it. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. It comes from Romans 15, 5 through 6. It's the same one I prayed through last week over each of you. I think I'm going to pray over it every week in this marriage series. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week.